the king looked at the girl and said, how did you learn that? And the girl said, I used to watch my mama. And there was a large mug of steaming hot chocolate. We love it's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me every time that you tune into these stories and bring them into your home and into your heart. And we always hope that they spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. It's going to be a great hour on the apple seat. We're going to bring you a story from Barbara Schutzgruber called The Girl Who Would Be King. We'll hear a story from Jill Lamed, who goes by the title that Tintagel storyteller. Tintagel, of course, the legendary birthplace of King Arthur. And we're going to pay a visit to Tennessee together, not to the National Storytelling Festival, but to a tiny little event that goes on on the grounds of the National Storytelling Festival every year. They call it the Fringe Festival, and we're going to pay him a visit. But it introduces us to the first story that we're going to hear today. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Lacey Ivey. Lacey Ivey is one of our assistant producers. Lacey, it's great to have you with it's me. It's great to be here. You know, when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was a Sean Connery and Michael Caine movie called The Man Who Would Be King, about a couple of pals who go off to be kings of Kafiristan. It's based on a Rudyard Kipling story, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking about that because we're going to hear a story now called The Girl Who Would Be King, right? Tell us a little bit about this story. Well, it's a little bit different than The Man Who Would Be King, (laughs) but it is just about this girl who follows the king's admonition to go to the palace because he has no heirs, and he just kind of sends a proclamation to the whole kingdom and says, if you want to be king, come to the palace, which, you know, is a little different than it would probably normally go, but this girl shows up, and after a lot of tests to try and narrow down how many people would be there to be king she is able to go through a bunch of trials and try and prove herself that she can be the king one day (laughs) you know i I talked about how at least the title of this story reminded me of, of of the film i loved as a kid but this uh this story brings special people to mind for you right it does This girl is so determined in everything she does, and it reminds me of my grandmother. (laughs) I don't know why everything reminds me of her, but everything (laughs) seems to. (laughs) Your grandma was like the girl in the story. She was. She grew up in a family of a lot of brothers. She only had one sister, and she worked at the Geneva Steel Company here in Utah, And so she was a very stubborn, determined woman. And she (laughs) passed that on to my dad and passed it on to me. And we lived with her for a lot of my life. So I was able to grow up and learn from her of how to be a determined person. You know, maybe this goes without saying, but it's not that everybody would hear this story and say, Gosh, you know who this story reminds me of? Lacey's grandma, right? <laughs> right. But but stories uh, tailor themselves to people in that way, right? Uh, they they you, you never know what's gonna bring on a memory, and you never know what memory it's gonna bring on. So it seems like you know how stories work for this story for you to bring on memories of your grandma, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what I love about stories. Barbara Schutzgruber is the teller. The story is the girl who would be king. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. There once was a king 
who had no heirs, no one to follow him, and he knew if he died without decreeing who would follow him, it would not be good for his people. There would be civil war. Who would rule? The other kingdoms around would look and say, you have no ruler. We will descend and take your kingdom. And so it was the king came up with a brilliant idea. He sent out a proclamation. Want to rule the kingdom? Come to the castle. He looked out of his apartments and the balcony, and here were thousands of people. Old, young, rich, poor, men, women, everyone was there, and the king thought to himself, need to adapt this concept. And so he tweaked his decree. There will be a test. Half of the people stood there and said, Test? We have to take a test? I'm not taking a test. We have to take a test for this. They were gone. Now we are only down to hundreds. Still needs to be narrowed down a bit. And so the king decreed, if you fail the test, off with your head. Three people were left. To one side was a scholar, brilliant, brilliant advisor. To the other side, the biggest thief in the entire country. And standing before him was a girl. Now he understood the scholar. He understood the thief. But this girl, she was about 16, 18, like when you're getting your driver's license or graduating from high school. And then he looked at this girl and said, wait, 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 I know you're kind. I can tell by the way you're dressed. You are one of those performers. You go into the marketplace, you do your shows and people watch, and then you go through the crowds and you pick pockets. You're a thief. And the girl stood up and she looked the king square in the eye and said, yes, I am a performer. In fact, my family are some of the best performers in your kingdom. But we are not thieves. We do not steal. And the king looked at the girl and thought to himself, huh, uppity little thing, isn't she? But if she succeeds, that will probably come in handy if she's going to rule a kingdom. And so the king said, here is your test. And he held up a coin, a copper coin, the equivalent of less than a penny. And he said, you take this coin and you buy something that will fill this room. Now the room was a huge council chamber, three times the size of this auditorium. And the king looked at the scholar and said, can you do that? And the scholar said, yes. The king looked at the thief and said, can you do that? And the thief said, yes. The king looked at the girl and said, can you do that? And the girl stopped for a moment. And she looked at the king and the scholar and the thief and all those faces looking at her. And she said, 
Yes. In fact, I can do it three times. And the king said, oh, really? She said, yes. The king looked at the scholar and said, could you do it three times? The scholar shook his head and said, no, not three, and stepped away. He looked at the thief and said, could you do it three times? The thief shook his head and said, no, and stepped away. The king looked at the girl and said, I don't care if you do it once. I don't care if you do it twice. If you do not do it three times, it will be off with your head. And the girl swallowed and said, watch. And so it was. The king handed the girl the penny. And off she went, off, 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 down, 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 down the steps, down into the bowels of that castle. And there in the kitchen she found the old cook. And she handed the cook that coin and whispered. And the cook laughed. And the cook handed her a great goose. And the girl went back up. And into the council chamber, many people had gathered because they had all heard this girl's going to do this three times. What's in a coin? And if she doesn't, she'll lose her head. They all came to see. Perhaps she'd win. Perhaps she wouldn't. And the girl stepped forward carrying this great goose. And the king said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Because even in those once upon a time days, you could not buy a goose for a penny. You stole that. The girl said, did not called the cook. Now the cook came up and the king said, how did she get a goose for a penny? And the, the cook said, well, she did give me a penny, that is true, but she also gave me something even better because you've had me stuck in this kitchen for weeks because you're doing parties. I haven't gotten out into the marketplace. She told me all the gossip that was going on down in the village. Oh, it was well worth the price of a goose. The king looked at the girl and said, how did you learn that? And the girl said, I used to watch my mama. My mama always handled the money, and we never had much. And there were times when we had no money, and my mama, my mama would trade, and she would barter. And my mama always said that if both parties were pleased, the trade was good. And the king thought to himself, huh, she understands people. But you haven't filled the room. The girl said, watch. And then she took that goose. This is before the days of processed meat. She broke its neck. She plucked it. She prepared that bird. And she rubbed it with oils and herbs. And she laid it on the grate over the coals in the center of that chamber. And something did fill that room. The smell, the smell of roasting meat. And the king smiled and said, where did you learn that? And she said, my grandma, my grandma, watching my grandma, my grandma is the best cook. And in fact, my grandma has always said there is more to eating than simply putting food into your stomach. And the king thought to himself, this is good. 
She understands how to feed the belly. But you've only filled the room once. What do you do now? The girl said, watch. And then she took that bird and she began, when it was finished, when it was falling off the bone, she took that meat and she began to break it apart and pass that bits of meat around through the people in that room. And as the people took the meat and began to eat, they began to tell stories. They told stories, stories of the best meal they ever had, stories of the worst meal they ever had, stories of family members who could cook, stories of family members who could not cook. <laughs> stories filled the room. And the king looked, and here were two of his advisors, two of his advisors who never once had a good thing to say about the other. Here were the two of them talking to each other and telling stories of food. And he looked at the girl and said, where did you learn that? She said, watching my uncles. My uncles are wonderful storytellers, and we go from place to place, and whenever we go from place to place, we are always the strangers. And when something bad happens, we are always blamed, because we are the strangers. But my uncles tell stories. And why, when my uncles tell stories, we're not strangers anymore. And the king thought to himself, this is good. She understands how to feed the heart. But your bird's gone. You've only filled the room twice. What will you do? The girl said, watch. And then she took the bone from the wing of that goose. And from her belt, she took a knife, because in those once upon, a, once upon a time days, everybody had a knife. And she bored out the center of that bone. And using the tip, she bore holes into that bone. And she placed it to her lips, and she filled the room with music. And the king said, where did you learn that? And she said, watching my brother, my brother is one of the best musicians. I have seen him bring people who were covered in tears and bent with sorrow. I have seen him with music turn their lives into smiles. And I have seen him bring people who were laughing to tears with his music. And the king thought to himself, this is good. She understands how to feed the soul. She is an artist. And so the girl went to work for the king. She became his apprentice, and she watched, and she learned. And when that king died, she ruled, and she ruled long and well. And everyone in that kingdom did live happily ever after. The story was The Girl Who Would Be King, the storyteller Barbara Schutzgruber. The 
the title of the story, a play on the old Rudyard Kipling tale, The Man Who Would Be King, which, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with this story. But <laughs> it's a pleasure to listen with you and also with one of our assistant producers, Lacey Ivy. Lacey, a pleasure to hear that story. Such a good story. You know, I got to tell you, uh, the story opened with the king making a proclamation that was as simple as, want to rule the kingdom? Come to the palace, right? Come to the castle. Mm-hmm. And I think I, th- I I found myself thinking about how I might respond to such a proclamation, right? Right. And I, and I think that like an earlier version of me, like maybe the high school version of me or <laughs> the junior high school version of me might have said, yeah, I want to rule the kingdom. I'll go to the castle, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think the version of me that I am now would say, oh, not even interested. No, there's no way. <laughs> I wouldn't ever dream of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so right from the beginning, this story had me kind of thinking about the ways in which I have changed over the years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, stories can do that, can't they? It's so true. You hear a story several times and each time it's different. It makes you think of different things. Yeah, which is, I think, a point for hearing stories over and over and over again at different times in your life, right? Mm -hmm. Well, a pleasure to hear that story, and there's a lot more coming up right here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us today on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Barbara Schutzgruber, a story called The Girl Who Would Be King. In just a moment, a visit to the Fringe Festival adjacent there to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And we're also going to hear a story called The Blue Feather by Jill Lamed, the Tintagel storyteller. But first, because we know that the sharing of stories, the sharing of memories, can often be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you you love. Uh, here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about, well, about Scooby-Doo. And it's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. It is a very simple memory. Not a big deal at all. I mean, really not a big deal at all. But you never know what memories are going to hit you on a given afternoon or how hard they're going to hit you. Do you? In this memory, my son, Seth, marched into the family room with a DVD to watch. Now, Seth is a grown-up now, but in this memory, he's four And he collapsed into the couch with a handful of pretzel sticks and asked if I wanted to join him. Pretzels and a movie with Seth? I mean, there's no better deal on earth. And so I hunkered down with him on the sofa, and one of us pressed the play button. And neither of us moved through four episodes of Scooby-Doo. Two hours worth. Now, in one episode, Scooby and Shaggy and the gang face a huge, scowling pirate with a great red beard who never speaks, just growls with his hands raised like big claws in the air. And in another episode, they face a glowing green undersea diver with the same vocabulary and general stance as the pirate in the other episode. 
Somewhere along the two hours, they face a shrieking ghost, a floating white sheet with black eye holes cut out, just like the costume your mom made you in elementary school. Well, as I watch, I wonder how my life might be easier if the real-life bad guys were as easy to identify as the villains in the cartoon. I mean, I would know who to stay away from if they went lumbering around with their hands in the air like claws and moaning through scowling mouths. And if none of that gave them away as bad guys, the frantic bad guy music accompanying their entrances surely would. The sheer bad guyness of those bad guys is telegraphed so loudly in so many ways that only an idiot could ever mistake them for anything else. Which, of course, Shaggy and Scooby do in almost every episode. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? I mean, there's the moment when they're looking at what they think is a painting of a bad guy, only to realize with the shock of horror and a big boingy sound effect that it's really the bad guy himself and not just a painting. Well, something like this happens again in almost every episode of Scooby-Doo. And if you're like my four-year-old, you're warning the characters out loud. You're saying, no, that's the real bad guy. Run! Well, Seth loved the cartoon, but he lost interest in the last reel of each episode where the gang unmasks the pirate or the ghost to find the gardener or the chauffeur, the guy who through the whole episode has had a kind face and given helpful advice, but who's really running an illegal nuclear waste shipping operation in a cave under the bayou. Well, Seth's interest wanes, but of course mine perks up then because this is more like real life, isn't it? I mean complexity, right? Where the forces that would harm me disguise themselves so well as my benign or even advantageous allies. Complexity in a world full so thoroughly of mixed signals as to run a laugh track over the scariest bits like they do on the cartoon. But then I wonder, are the dangers of my life so terribly complex? Or is it just the filters of my own selfishness or my own ambition or my own desires that make them seem so? I mean, I know myself well enough, I guess, to know that I've welcomed into my life some of the very real perils of this world. Not because they were fiendishly disguised, but because looking at them through the rose-colored glasses of my own eager and self-serving weaknesses made them look like gentle smiling friends instead of the growling monstrous fiends that they are and i'm not always as lucky as shaggy and scooby to so easily escape the dangers wrought upon me by evils that i should have recognized long before they came within striking distance you know to those who like seth recognize dangers early enough to warn us to run may heaven grant lungs enough to keep shouting and to Shaggy and Scooby, and to me, heaven grant us wings on our heels. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And coming up, a visit to the Fringe Festival, a little event that takes place on the grounds of the National Storytelling Festival just about every year. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? 
great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the tales that we tell around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire to films that we see and songs that we digest and love and food that we eat and of course through the books that we read and it's always a pleasure to have Rachel Wadham with us to talk a little bit about some of her favorite books. Rachel, it's a pleasure to have you. Always happy to be here. <laughs> and I, you know, I know what book we're talking about. Yes, here. you do. I already and, I spoiled it for you, but the audience doesn't know yet, so it's still a surprise for them. <laughs> and 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 to set it up, I I will say I will say this: I was hired once a long time ago to write a song about Butch Cassidy. Very cool. And in writing this song about Butch Cassidy, and then in performing that song in different places, you would not believe the number of people who would come up to me and say, "Butch Cassidy is my aunt's third third cousin." Whatever. Yeah. It, and, and they yeah. feel like this yeah. sort of filial relationship yeah. to Butch Cassidy, but it yeah. let me into this whole world of outlaws. Yes. And among yes. them, Bonnie, among them, and, Bonnie Clyde. and Clyde, which is yeah. the book I'm going to talk about today. Yeah, it's it's called Bonnie and Clyde, The Making of a Legend by Karen Blumenthal. Mm. And it's so interesting to me because when you talk about these kinds of characters, they're really in many ways mythic yeah. characters. Yep. And they're mythic real characters, which is fun. They're not mythic fantasy characters or made up characters. Right. And so much of what we know about them is actually myth and yeah. <laughs> it's actually false. And I think that's an interesting storytelling conundrum. Yeah. Right. So if you're writing or telling a story that is factual, you want to stick to just the facts, ma'am, right? right? right. <laughs> kind of thing. But the reality is, how do you delve between those two? Yeah. And I think storytellers kind of play this balancing game <laughs> when they're doing these things. And even like when we as storytellers tell like a family story or yeah. something like that that really happened, how many of those stories get embellished over time? Yeah. Or what we remember isn't exactly what happened? <laughs> or, you know, Uncle Joe becomes somebody that he really isn't. Right, right, right. And the same is true of characters like Butch Cassidy or, you know, Jesse James and particularly Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Because so much of what they did was, you know, in a time where there wasn't real accurate reporting in the newspapers. Right. And there isn't, wasn't even real great forensic evidence. You know, the, the police force was not as well put together yeah. as we would consider our police forces today. And so Karen Blumenthal has this really interesting problem when she comes at this is how to divide fact from fiction yeah. in this kind of structure. And one of the things I love about this book is she does that so well. And she is very able to put markers in this book where she says, yeah, this is where we can verify what happened. Yeah. And this is why we can verify what happened. But these are some of the stories that were told around it, or these are some of the stories that came out of it. She also can say, you know, we really don't know what happened. We really don't know what kinds of things happened, hmm. but we can assume from this kind of evidence what the true story is. And then she'll often just say, you know, this is what people say, but 
you know, we can't verify if it's true. And, and chances are it's mythic. Sure. Particularly in this book, there's little asides that she does throughout the book where she says, is it really a myth? I mean, there was a lot of things that uh, were circulated at the time that said Bonnie was actually pregnant yeah. at the time she was killed. And there's really no way to verify that. I mean, there's no autopsy evidence or anything like that. Yeah. And there is some, you know, structural things of people saying rumors like that, but none of her family and all of this kind of stuff. So she really talks about this in a really concrete and interesting way and kind of says, yeah, there's a lot of this kind of mythic stuff that, that goes on. I think it's a great example for kids, particularly, who want to be storytellers and to understand that, you know, dividing fact from fiction can be tricky. It and, can and, be tricky. And how can you do it when you're trying to tell a really factual story? You know, we have, I think, so much of our so much of the myth making surrounding people like Bonnie and Clyde or Butch Cassidy or any of the others is drawn with such great power by desire. Exactly. The first thing yeah. we want is to take it. The first thing we want is to find in these characters examples of the good guys and mm-hmm. not the bad guys. Right? And that really is interesting because if you look at the facts with Bonnie and Clyde, they were horrendous criminals. Yeah. I mean, the, a number of people that they shot in cold blood really is is stunning to yeah. me. Theft and all kinds of these things. But there is something very romantic yeah. about a young couple in love fleeing right. from the man. And, Fighting you know, the fight man. The man. That's right. And, <laughs> and particularly in the time period when we're talking about during the Great Depression, yeah. when there were a lot of people that didn't have work and didn't have access to even the basic necessities of yeah. life and, and who were just trying to scrape by and and this young couple who is is trying to make their way in the world together and who stand side by side even yeah. through the darkest times there is something essentially romantic about that kind of story and they i think they become our swashbuckling mm-hmm, romantic magic heroes. sympathetic mm-hmm. heroes, heroes right? yeah. yeah and so i love books like this that actually take that and say you know here's the romanticism of it but here's also the reality of it yeah. and and tries to provide as much of a balanced view as you can in those kinds of situations because i think these kinds of characters are always going to be interesting to us sure. no matter who we are, right? They're always going to be interesting to us. And they always have that sense of the interesting, romantic, you know, other person that's there. And, yeah. You know, who one of us hasn't thought about? Yeah, I just wish I could, <laughs> you know, drop everything. And, and, the and nice, you, know. you know, the nice thing about a book like this, as you talk about it, I mean, it gives you the legend Definitely. at the same time as it gives you the fact and helps you sort sort, sort them, between right? the two. Sort between the two. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't flatten the story. You get all of the richness of the legend yeah. and the fact and everything else. Yeah, it, you it's, do. It's yeah. an easy book to find because Bonnie and Clyde's name are in the title. In the title right? and Karen Blumenthal, that's <laughs> (laughs) pretty easy to remember so check it out (laughs) oh thanks so much for joining us rachel my pleasure it's always a pleasure to visit with rachel wadham and we'll have her back soon coming up a visit to the fringe festival a little event that takes place adjacent to the national storytelling festival just about every year and you won't want to miss it it's coming up i'm sam Payne. you're listening to the appleseed we'll be back in a moment Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. How about a little journey together, a little trip to Jonesboro, Tennessee, on the grounds of the National Storytelling Festival? The trip starts right here. On the Saturday afternoon of the festival, a crowd gathers on the steps of the old Jonesboro Courthouse. They're here for an annual event called the Fringe Festival. Now, this event isn't on the festival schedule, but it happens right here in this spot every year where it's been going on for nearly three decades. It's hosted by storyteller Ed Stivender, and the Fringe Festival is really not much more than an hour of impromptu storytelling, sharing of poems and songs and stories, and even dances from just about anyone who wants to participate right there on the courthouse steps. And Ed Stivender is a gracious master of ceremonies, introducing world-renowned storytellers and novices alike to an audience made up partly of folks who are die-hard fringe attenders and partly of folks who were just walking by. What can you hear at the Fringe Festival? Well, you might hear a story about a dog from a guy like Knut Parker Rary. That dog's sport was a wonder dog. That was part Scooby-Doo, part Collie, and part Wolf. That story's going to unfold into an epic tale of an unfortunate meeting between an intrepid dog and a bunch of farm equipment. And people love it. They love everyone who stands up on the sidewalk in front of the courthouse. Fred Berthold, who has been coming to the fringe since it began, tells a German story by Jane Yolen, a story about how the world's animals asked for lives only as long as their usefulness and happiness might continue in the world, and how a certain number of years was taken from each of those animals at their requests and given to man, who was lobbying for a longer lifespan. Fred tells his story with furry puppets, a donkey, a dog, and a monkey. We hear from JP, a local who tells us a story about the death of the great stock car driver, Dale Earnhardt. And we hear from Eldon Bale, a festival visitor from Nashville, who recites the Roald Dahl poem about the pig who, considering his fate and the farmer who will administer that fate, says, I had a fairly powerful hunch that he might eat me for his lunch, and so, because I feared the worst, I thought I'd better eat him first. We hear also from Doug Elliott, a terrific storyteller and naturalist and musician whose work we've often featured on The Appleseed. Doug puts his harmonica in his mouth and treats us to a blues about all sorts of animals with a catfishy refrain. Catfish, catfish, swimming upstream. Catfish, catfish, where you been? Grab that catfish by the snout. <laughs> oh, Lord, I pulled that catfish out. Go up, sip, blackbird says to the crow. Doug Elliott entertaining the crowd at the Fringe Festival with Catfish Blues. And Ed Stivender keeps things moving along like a ringmaster, here giving gracious introductions to each teller. Like this. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in for a treat now. She did a show at the at the schoolhouse earlier today. Will you welcome fabulous storyteller <laughs> Sheila Arnold-Jones. The Fringe, like we said, is characterized by performances from tellers from all walks of life and all experience levels on stage. Sheila Arnold-Jones 
is from Hampton, Virginia, and has performed on stages large and small at festivals, workshops, and more. I've seen her under the big circus tents right here in Jonesboro. And here at the Fringe, Sheila does a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the great American poet. And she tells us about learning Dunbar poems from her mother when she was young. And she tells us about how black schools in the South in the days of segregation were often named for Dunbar. And the poem she performs at the Fringe is, she says, the first Dunbar poem she ever performed when she was 10 years old. It's called In the Morning. Here's a taste. Last, last, bless the Lord. Don't you know the days are born? If you don't get up, you scamp, there'll be trouble in this camp. Thinks I'm going to let you sleep while I mix the board and keep. <laughs> That's a pretty how to do. Don't you hear me, Elias, you? Bet if I come across this floor, you won't find no time to snore. Daylight all are shining in while you sleep. Why, it's a sin. Sheila Arnold Jones on the sidewalk of the courthouse in Jonesboro at the Fringe Festival. An hour of impromptu storytelling every year on the Saturday of the festival at 5 p.m. In addition to stories and poems, there are other traditions associated with the Fringe that have been going on for years. One is a Morris dance from Larry and Ruth. Morris dances have their roots all the way back in the 15th century. And the dance that Ruth does to Larry's fiddling is from a tradition that goes back to Cambridgeshire in England, a feast dance performed to collect money against the harsh winter. Here's Ruth to introduce the performance. This is a dance called Old Molly Oxford or Old Mother Oxford, also known as Step Back in the uh, set version of the dance. The jig doesn't usually use the step back stuff, but I probably will fall into it because I'm used to doing it with five other people. And when I do it with five other people, I step back. So yeah. we'll see what happens. And uh, my wonderful husband is going to play the tune for me and keep me moving. Ruth dances as Larry plays, just like they've been doing for years. It's over. It's time for another fringe tradition. One of the traditions in Morris dancing is passing the hat to collect money. However, here at the Fringe Festival, instead of passing the hat, what we do here is, of course, as you remember, we sell fringe. <laughs> and usually we have either red or blue, but I figured the political climate right now would make that a little bit tricky. So we've got white, all colors put together, the color of white. Each of us in the audience there on the courthouse steps takes a little piece of white fringe from a grocery sack that makes the rounds, and each of us tosses a dollar or two in the sack as we take the fringe out. We put the fringe on our shirts. We pin it on top of the little swatch of fabric that serves as the general admission badge each year at the National Storytelling Festival. The Fringe Festival takes place each year at the same time and in the same place on the Saturday of the National Festival, but it's always been kind of an underground undertaking. Ed Stivender tells me a little bit about the long history of the Fringe in Jonesboro, all the way back to the time when the organization behind the festival was called NAPPS, N-A-P-P-S, the National Association for the Preservation and Perpetuation of Storytelling. 
about maybe 25 years ago, uh, a guy named Chuck Larkin and Angela Davis and Barbara Freeman got together and said, let's do some impromptu storytelling at the steps of the courthouse in the main street of Jonesboro, Tennessee. So we started doing the fringe. And at the beginning, Chuck Larkin would play his saw and Barbara would do her clog dancing and we would play banjo and Angela would, would play her auto, auto harp. Angela, De, Angela Lloyd would play her auto harp and we would have a great time. And the washboard. And the washboard, Angela playing the washboard. And we would show up the next year, do the same thing. Then around 1992, I think, there were so many people watching the fringe that we were blocking the street. And so the National Storytelling Festival, NAPS, it was known as that, NAPS that day, uh, shut us down and told us we had to stop and cease and desist. Following your, the police shut the street down so that we didn't have any problems. And so the fringe came back full heartily. And it's been going on maybe 27 years, wow. something like that. Yeah. Angela Lloyd is the real force behind it. Uh, she wasn't able to join us this year. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the way, the protocol of the thing is, if you show up at five o'clock, you get to tell a story if you wish. If we run out of the people who were here at five o'clock, then I look around and see if there's any friends that I have in the audience, and they get a chance to do it or not do it, and that's how we roll. That's the um, that's the story of the French. Oh, and to um, we don't pass the hat. What we do is sell pieces of fringe, and the people who buy the pieces of fringe put that fringe on their tag, and so they recognize each other as we go through the rest of the festival as fellow fringers. Ed Stivender talking about the long-standing Jonesboro, Tennessee tradition of the Fringe Festival held during the weekend of the National Storytelling Festival each year, now almost for three decades. The Fringe Festival ends each year in a traditional way, with a shaker dance. And since none of us know it, we have to learn it. First step. The shakers felt that uh, the dance was a form of prayer. Uh, you don't have to be praying here, you can just be dancing. Um, the first, one thing they wanted to do is shake out the carnality, the, the negative vibes, and he did it by shaking out their hands as they stamped eight stamps forward, fast, but not fast, you ready? And eight stamps, one, two, three, four, the dance we're learning is filled with movement designed to signify the denial of the world's carnality and the ready receipt of grace from God. And the folks who have enjoyed the Fringe Festival all participate, dancing along in two lines while we all sing simple gifts together. The Fringe Festival, one of the grand old traditions associated with the National Storytelling Festival, 
Our thanks to Fringe Festival host Ed Stivender and to the tellers and audience members who joined us on the courthouse steps in Jonesboro, Tennessee for an hour of tales, songs, poems, and dances. There's a lot more coming up right here on the Appleseed Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio. A visit to the Fringe Festival takes place just about every year on the grounds of the National Storytelling Festival right there on the courthouse steps in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Up next, we're going to bring you a story from Jill Lamed, the Tintagel storyteller. Tintagel, of course, being the legendary birthplace of King Arthur. And this story is called The Blue Feather. We're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Once upon a time, there was a little girl called Amber because she had such beautiful red hair. She was all alone in the world. She had no mother, no father, no sister, no brother, no aunts, nor uncles, nor cousins. She had been alone for so long that she had forgotten that her name was Amber, forgotten how to speak, forgotten what words meant. She lived in a tiny room under a great empty house that was crumbling down around her. All the other houses in the streets nearby were empty, but they hadn't always been empty. A few years before, this had been a bustling wealthy merchant's quarter. But that was before the plague came, the plague that killed so many people that killed all of Amber's family, leaving her quite alone in the world. As soon as the plague appeared, those people who were not yet ill ran away to other parts of the city where they might be safe. By the time little Amber realised she was all alone, it was too late. She tried to find help in the other parts of the city, But whenever people saw her, they threw stones and shouted, Get away! Plague! Plague! Unclean! The stones hurt the little girl, and the shouting frightened her. She ran back to her old home and hid in the little room under the cellar. At first there was plenty of food left lying around, but at last there was none left, and little Amber grew hungry. Then she crept into the city, along the dark and crooked alleyways, and stole what bits of bread and fruit she could find in the dustbins and rubbish dumps. One day, when she was looking for food, she saw a cart laden with beautiful big red apples, and the greengrocer was nowhere to be seen. Quickly, She ran up to the cart, grabbed an apple in each hand, and then fled away down the street, heading for home. But as she turned a corner, she ran slap-bang into the large greengrocer. The man saw what Amber had in her hands, and grabbed hold of her by the collar of her frayed shirt, shouting, Stop, thief! Stop, thief! Amber screamed, The man shouted, and police whistles could be heard, and heavy feet pounding towards them. At last, as Amber struggled, the worn fabric of her shirt ripped, and she broke free, running as fast as she could down the nearest alleyway. She could still hear the shouts of, Stop, thief! But she didn't know what the words meant. She was just frightened and needed to run away. 
Behind her, the shouts continued. Police whistles blew, and heavy-booted feet thudded after her. Amber dodged down alley after alley, but still the whistles and running feet followed. At last, in front of her, she saw a place in the path where a manhole cover had been lifted and not put back properly. An iron ladder led down into the darkness. Amber flung herself onto the ladder and scrambled down almost to the bottom. Then she squeezed herself behind the ladder, hoping she was hidden from sight. The thudding boots slowed down and stopped above her. Then the daylight disappeared as a huge face filled the hole at the top of the ladder and a booming voice called out, Come on up, little girl. We won't hurt you. But Amber didn't move. She didn't understand the words, and she was frightened. A second voice said, Should we go down after her? And the first replied, No way. You saw the rags she had on? She probably lives down there. It's like a maze. We'd never catch her. Best thing we can do is put the lid back on. Tell the greengrocer we lost her. It was only a couple of apples anyway. And that is what they did. They put the heavy manhole cover back in its place, leaving Amber all alone in the dark. After a few minutes, she crept up the ladder and tried to push the cover away. But it was much too heavy for a little girl to shift. So she climbed down the ladder and stepped off into a channel of icy, cold water that came up to her ankles. In the dark, she walked against the flow of the water, which got steadily deeper and faster the further she went. Soon it was up to her knees. Now she needed to keep a hand on the cold, slimy wall so that she didn't fall over. Gradually, her eyes became accustomed to the dark. In front of her, she saw a vast underground lake, absolutely still. Amber stepped forward and screamed. The icy water was up to her waist. She stumbled and put out a hand to catch the wall, and it wasn't there. She fell over sideways under the water. She landed on some submerged steps. Gasping, she managed to crawl up and out of the water. Then she carried on climbing. The stone steps went up and up, round and round, a great spiral staircase that seemed to go on forever in the darkness. Amber was exhausted. But on and on she climbed, until her way was blocked by a wooden door. She explored with her fingers until she found the latch, which she lifted and gently eased the door open just a little. Brilliant blue light flooded out, blinding her. Amber sat on the stone stairs and waited until her eyes became accustomed to the light. Then, pushing the door wider, she slipped through and found herself in a large circular room filled with light. 
the room was empty, except for one table in the middle. On the table was a large leather-bound book, and on the book was a blue feather. Now little Amber couldn't read, so the book was of no interest. But the feather, oh, she thought that was pretty. She picked it up and held it as she started to explore the room, hoping to find another way out. There were windows all the way round. Amber could see that she was in a tower high above the city. But there was only one door, the one that led to the dark stone staircase and the icy underground lake. She was trapped, wet, cold, tired and hungry. Amber collapsed on the floor and wept, wishing and wishing she was safe in her little room under the empty house. There was a sudden flash of blue light, and when Amber opened her eyes, she was in her little room. She was so pleased she didn't bother to wonder how that had happened. Then she realised she had lost the apples. She had nothing to eat, and she was so cold and hungry. Again she wept, and wished and wished she could have some hot food again, like she remembered her mother making for her so long ago. There was a sudden flash of brilliant blue light, and when Amber opened her eyes, her little table was covered with wonderful hot food. There was a great bowl of hot soup, a plate of hot bread dripping with butter, a dish full of hot apple pie and a jug full of custard, and there was a large mug of steaming hot chocolate. Amber didn't stop to wonder how that had happened. She just ate and ate until she was bursting. Then she collapsed on the pile of rags that served as her bed and went fast asleep. It was when she awoke that she started to wonder. I was in that round room, then I was here. I was hungry, and then there was food. But she couldn't make any sense of it. Then she noticed the blue feather lying where she had dropped it in her sleep. She picked it up and wondered, could the feather have had something to do with it? But that was much too big a thought for her to handle. She turned to her table and saw the remains of the wonderful meal still lying there, and it reminded her of the meals her mother had made, and she wept, wishing and wishing she had a family around her again and a mother to love her and care for her and there was a brilliant flash of blue light, and suddenly the room was empty. Amber was no longer there. On the other side of the city, a woman was giving birth. The midwife took the infant and laid it in the woman's arms. She gazed at her child and said, Oh, what a beautiful little girl.'
Welcome, my daughter. Oh, I love you so much already. What am I going to call you? I know. Look at all that lovely red hair. Your name must be Amber. Jill Lamed with a story called The Blue Feather here on the Apple Seed. Such a pleasure for me to be with you. And before we go, we want to remind you that we're engaging in a month-long service project here on BYU Radio. We're hoping that with our listeners together, we can accomplish 10,000 acts of service. And you can do anything you like to participate. You can make cookies for a neighbor or tell a story to someone that you love or mow somebody's lawn or wash somebody's dishes, all kinds of things, anything you can think of. The slogan for this service project activity is bring it because we want everyone to bring it, bring their talents and their interests and their opportunities and their ideas to do something good. You can find out more about the project at byuradio.org slash service. Again, that's byuradio.org slash service. Let's do something good together. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.